1: I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. My guest is Nathan Englander, whose latest novel is Kaddish.com. Earlier books include For the Relief of Unbearable Urges, which is a collection of short stories, What We Talk About When We Talk About Anne Frank, another collection, there's also Dinner at the Center of the Earth,
0: which I spoke with you about, and Ministry of Special Cases. That's five, I think, yeah. The first was 20 years for for the Leap and Verbal Urges, but I just made it under the wire by four days. That gives me a four-year average. This last one, I believe you had finished
1: when you were on tour for Dinner at the Center of the Earth.
0: Yeah, when we were talking, I, we may have discussed that, which is, I really wrote this dinner, which was a political thriller that's also a history that's also a magic realist love story that's you know has seven timelines and five different countries that book so much spurred this book but when I sent it off to my agent I really promised her like take a week take a month take four months like it's gonna take time you know it was this 600 page sort of dreamscape and yeah then this one it comes from a Philip Roth conversation that we had about starting books you know like he would go off and really start the next book the same day that he typed the end that kind of thing the day I handed in I just you know was
1: that an actual conversation you're you were friends with him yeah right? yeah
0: and uh, so yeah he was saying that he'd finished we were just talking one day and he talked about finishing a novel and going he lived on the Upper West Side and going over to the Natural History Museum and he was looking up at the whale and he's like well now what do I do and he went home and started the next one and though it's so lovely and also pathological and also super creative and you know it's it's so complex the notion of like starting the next book that day but i really really thought about what that meant and the continuum and how we work as writers and yeah i you know i was thinking of him but i sent this book off and then the next day i started kaddish.com how did that happen i mean you didn't go to the uh, museum of jewish history to do that no you know what like it's it's things work differently back back to the 20 year mark. Like i really believe in like the subconscious now and process and dissociative states and all that. I'm so not a touchy feely person. Like I really try and be cynical and a good New Yorker just want to eat my bagel and, you know, shove people on the subway. But when it comes to creativity, like, yeah, I really work differently over time. And I think certain stories like I you kind of wait till they're there in a different manner. I yeah, I get all spiritual and you know when we when we talk about this stuff, but this one really I I said a dream this one came like a dream. I usually, you know, I really when we talk about how, you know, that this is our third book, you know, it's usually a decade in between kind of right. thing. But yeah, this one instead of 3 years, I the first draft was 3 months. It really came like in a fever. So, what was the original inspiration then? There's always 50 of them, so we can pick the top 3, but uh you know, one of them, I think, is I, I've started to become aware over time of how much sometimes the execution of a joke with empathy, like a joke's just a joke. But the idea of building a universe around it or, or you know, putting weight on it or making it real. Like I used to have long, crazy long hair picture, you know, a young Cher, you know. I had this right. curls down my back and, you know, I'd go to my sister's for Shabbat dinner and her friends would be like, oh, I could make a wig out of that, you know, like that was just a joke. But then I thought about what about the Hasidic woman who's in this closed world and sees a guy in like Chelsea, in the old Chelsea, in the flower district, sees his hair and has to have it. You know, that became my story, the wig. and. I grew up religious, which is part of that, and now I'm so secular, and everybody makes fun of me, all my friends, my wife, everybody, like, thinks I'm just a hair trigger away from, like, you know, growing a beard to the floor and becoming Hasidic. Like, my wife, really, every time she opens the door, she's like, is he going to be nailing up all over the place and koshering the kitchen? So I guess I thought about it in life. You get sort of one change, you know, whether you're, like you know, change political stripes or, you know, you can drink and then stop drinking. You're supposed to get, you get one choice. You can become religious. You can be secular. It's kind of limiting in a way. Like if I grew up so religious and that was such a large part of my life, wouldn't it also follow that maybe one day I'd be like, wow, you know what? I really miss that. You know, like why not just flip? And I thought about, that idea, and I see that that runs through. That's what the last book is—a book of doublings. You know, my story, giggle of Park Avenue. I, I seem to also be obsessed with this idea of the sudden radical change. Okay, that's
1: one, and that happens in this book as yes. as Larry becomes Shuli. Yeah. Uh, what about the the Kaddish.com concept?
0: Oh, so you know, back to this family. We're going to have like a, a therapy day interview. We're, we keep talking extra personal today, like. Oh, yeah. Just, you know, my father's passed away around a decade ago. You know, my family, we really don't like the idea of tolerance. Tolerance is insulting. I may have even said that to you before. I'm always thinking about, like, mutual respect. You know, our country's ripped in half. Like, it's explosive now. Like, this idea of, and again, there is right and wrong. We don't have time to unpack that today. And also, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, we go over, you know what I'm saying? We just give over a lot of time to that. We're talking about books now. But nonetheless, like my family, we are so religiously different. Like, you know, they're so much more conservative than me in a million different ways. Like, we bridge that. You know what I'm saying? I'm respectful of them. They're respectful of me. Nobody has to, like, sell themselves out in that way or bend in a way that's uncomfortable for them. We make it work. But I was thinking, when you talk about the Kaddish and again, there's this prayer, but I'm calling it the prayer for the dead, but the mourner's prayer, the Kaddish, it's such a gigantic thing in Jewish culture. Like when someone dies, you know, in this case, Larry, the main character, his father dies. And the notion is you need somebody like advocating for you on earth. Like they need to say this prayer for 11 months, you know, like with a quorum three times a day. And the prayer gets said eight times in each of those prayer sessions.
1: I had never heard of that. I remember the Yishkadol thing yeah, yeah. would happen, and I know that once a year you light the yard side candle. There you have but that's it. more or less as far as I went. And I didn't even go that far.
0: Yeah. So that is literally the point. Like you are who you are. Like so many Jews are that way. And right. this is the point. Larry has left this world and his sister is not at all egalitarian. Like it's on him and his father died. And literally it's his father's belief, his sister's belief. Like their father is literally going to feel the hell fires if Larry doesn't say this prayer eight times a day. And who can you expect to say that prayer eight times a day? like at synagogue who's just not a religious person and that is the pressure that starts the book which is how we eventually get to this site kaddish.com
1: the site kaddish.com i mean we could give this part of yeah, it away yeah, which is yeah. that the site says that somebody you pay somebody and they will do the morning for you so you don't have to do all this religious ritual did you type in
0: kaddish.com to see what would happen um really nervously after I made up the book. You know what I'm saying? Like, as the idea was taking form, I was like please don't have someone's site on, you know, here. And it's just a parking spot for a name. And we've been trying to buy it. Nobody, I think it's one of those, you know, places where people buy a bunch of names. I mean, it's not like a family name, you know, so they just don't want to sell it. We actually have .com com, which is kind of funny, but nonetheless, yeah, I really wanted that site badly. And that comes, you know, part of this book, like it's really about Larry. He becomes born again. Again, if we're talking about the site, he's looking at porn, which is Jewish guilt and this whole Philip of...
1: Roth, too. Yeah,
0: yeah. Back to what we're talking about, Philip. Like, yes, if you're going to go there, you, be... yeah, go big or go home. It's a kind of a shocking scene, but nonetheless, like in this like wave of wash of guilt, he finds this site and you know, finds a proxy, which we can unpack or not unpack if you want to talk about that. But I love this idea in Judaism about proxies. But yeah, then he becomes born again, again. And he really, I mean, that's what really drives the book is he's, you know, after getting his father's soul back, it's almost a mystery that way.
1: The book itself contains so many different Jewish rituals that I frankly have never heard of. I assume all of them are real.
0: Yeah. Oh, so yeah, you're You're onto, and I definitely want to talk about like God and technology and all that. Now you've got my head spinning, but back to that, you know, I'm a workshopper. Like, you know, I went to Iowa writers workshop and they got us really obsessed with, I, I don't know if it's a chicken or egg thing, if it draws that kind of Person, But all my friends from there, like we're obsessed with continuity. So you can make stuff up. It's a novel. But yeah, I go so deep into the like, you know, the bones of it, the structure of it. So yeah, I I had books everywhere. I was calling rabbis like I desperately need the internal logic to work, even if it doesn't have to make sense to anyone but me.
1: Well, Nathan Englander, I could probably turn these notes over to you. You could read them and probably come up with with various things because the God versus technology is right here, which we will get to yeah, because yeah. it's a really good question. But getting back to all of these rituals, um, now they're all real. In your religious growing up, that was in Hempstead, right?
0: West Hempstead. West yeah. Hempstead.
1: Did you do all that? Everything in that book that that truly does.
0: So back to dream spaces, like, you know, when I thought about, as I said, like being in this last novel and wanting to go back to where I began to ideas of, you know, sacred and profane and gray space. Yeah, I made up this town for the first book, Royal Hills, which is a weird mashup of like West Hempstead, Long Island and Crown Heights and Borough Park. And, and I really also thought about which stripe. He would be like, which you know, version of religious, but yeah, we were we were really religious people, not black hat, but you know, I call it gap orthodox. You know, we wore the yarmulke and the tzitzis. I mean, we were super religious, but we wore you know, khakis and button down shirts.
1: Explain what tzitzis is.
0: Oh, uh, ritual fringes, like this when you see strings hanging out of people's pants, those and, are they. Did
1: you have the payas? on the No, no, but
0: that's the thing. Like, there's, you know, the law is the law. So you can grow them long if you want, just like your hair. But yeah, we had like, you never shave. Yeah, it's all biblical. But you know, there are these points on your face you don't shave. So not recognizable ones, but you would never have your hair like cut above your ear. That would be shocking. Like they'd freak out at school.
1: From Friday sundown until Saturday sundown. Yeah, n- those you couldn't turn on electric nope. lights. You could do basically
0: nothing. Somebody would have to come in and turn your TV on, right? You're going old school, like the World Series. Be like, could you turn the TV on? It's the World Series. But uh, no, we didn't knock on the neighbor's door. But yeah, I was a religious kid. That's how you end up with books. You know, that's one nice part of it. I feel like there's this whole thing now, back to technology, is people call it like a device shabbat. Like there's people who try and take, you know, 24 hours and not touch their phone and stuff. But uh, when I see the light, my hand's like a claw from my iPhone, even just coming in from the airport. I have to say that... It could be boring, but I don't get to be bored in that way anymore. Like a nice 24 hours or 25 hours to just read or play Scrabble is really nice. I think about that notion a lot, though. (laughs) Six-day cycles really work creatively and everything. Yeah, pick your Saturday.
1: Getting back to Kaddish.com, okay, you you went online, you found nothing there, which was a complete and absolute relief. Because, it really was. Because <laughs> now you could make things up. Yeah, yeah. At that point, did you know exactly, not necessarily what, what Shuli, Larry, who changed his name to Shuli, what he would do, but you, did you know what Kaddish.com would wind up being by the end of the book?
0: Yeah, books take different forms, and, you know, Back to the spoiler part of it, like where the journey goes, what happens. I think I really did know early on, like where the book was headed. This one was written towards a place, you know, like I not that it was the exact ending or I knew how the pieces fit together. But yes, some books, you know, or a story, you hear two people talking and that's a world or you hear a first line or you have a scene. But yeah, I think this one was very much headed towards a point from the beginning. So you knew
1: at some point that Jerusalem would play a role.
0: I think I probably did know that early on, yeah. And and a different Jerusalem, I think that's it. Back to being on the road again and I'm in city of day mode, for which I'm thankful for, even if I'm often confused. Yeah, touring, I did this Haggadah translation that Jonathan Safran Foer edited. I have to say, uh, the hardest thing to tour is Haggadah. The Jews are like, why'd you do this? Why'd you do that? I was like, that was very intense. But uh, taking a book that I wrote on Israel-Palestine and the Gaza conflict, those were some intense questions. This Jerusalem is like it's it really is when you when I think of the one that I was raised with like a mystical it's almost a magical place it's 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 sort of outside of time in its way so yes this is surely going to a place cuz he's looking for someone and something and it it really is it was a much more peaceful Jerusalem for me to get to spend time with after the last one which is a very violent version of it
1: is there a hill like the hill in the book, or is that, is yeah. that your
0: dreamland? No, well, that's when I lived there and I moved there for the peace process, which did not work out, but that was one of the like things that sparked wanting to write the last book is, A, I want my piece back. But B, just because people destroy things doesn't mean that they weren't, you know, it seemed doesn't mean it wasn't possible. Like it seemed such a crazy thing to talk about the peace process. It was real. When I moved there, we were all like stone writers and artists living in this neighborhood. But the point is we had this little, this neighborhood in the heart of the heart of the city that's almost like hidden. It's just out outside of time, as I said. And then there was this little triangle across the street. I lived in this crazy little like Bukharian triangle for years. And it was like leaving the world around us when I would step down the stairs. So this street, there's like a sort of imagined street in this book, but it's really close to the streets that are there. It wasn't a big leap to come up with a, you know, sort of invisible mystical street for Shuli to look for.
1: What gets me as I listen to you talk is how I'm realizing that even though this is a fiction about somebody who isn't Nathan Englander living a life that you're not living and it's kind of a comedy, verges on magic realism, It's actually might be your most autobiographical novel.
0: In a lot of ways. And a lot of, I would like to get to acknowledge which scenes are and aren't chapter one. That doesn't have to be that autobiographical, but, um, you know what? It's like, I, I've learned each book. I feel like a lot of writers work differently. Like those first, first stories or that first novel is so thinly veiled, you know, like that Henry right. Miller stuff where you're like, he's eating a burger. And like, I'm sure he had that burger, you know, for me, I, I'm so such a private person that I feel like I always had to go far to get close. So, you know, my story of dreaming of being a writer, like I didn't set it in suburbia or on the Upper West Side of my tiny apartment. I went to like Stalinist, you know, work camp in 1952. Like that's the jump. And I feel like with each book, I'm starting to be able to mine things that are really personal in a different way. So yes, a lot of these things are kind of, you know, these ideas that are Torturous to me and that absorb me. And yeah, it really feels close to my heart, this book. They all do, but but in that personal thing you're saying, it, it really does feel like it's not a big reach. You know, he's neurotic, I'm neurotic. I want
1: to go back to something that you kind of mentioned in one of your word salads a few minutes ago.
0: <laughs> that they are.
1: <laughs> that they are. Um, you mentioned about God and technology, and I noticed, and you discuss this in a couple of interviews, and you bring it up here. I mean, from my perspective, when I get online and I see something online or I don't find it more likely or I'm looking for something and it's not there, a part of me isn't going, oh, it's Google, it's the search engine or somebody didn't. I'm thinking the universe is telling me yes. something. Does it, Is this sort of what you're driving
0: at? Yes, very much so. like first of all the amount of our lives that the the you know the alternate lives that are in there, it's like your work life, your pictures, your your love life and your secret guilty love life like you know what I'm saying everything's in this machine like we shop there we live inside of it in you know so many ways, which is not news, but I was just thinking about what faith means and what empathy means, you know how that functions through the screen and I guess, Part of it is Shuli goes back to his old yeshiva and he becomes a rabbi, He becomes a teacher at his old school. You know, he's been out in the world. He's living in Clinton Hill, Brooklyn. Now he's religious again. And, you know, he ends up having to touch a computer, which he stayed away from. But I I guess I thought back to my rebellious self at 13. Like one of the things that you'd get thrown out of class for was it was, you know, me challenging ideas of omniscience. You know, saying that a God could know where every everything everybody's done everything everybody's doing and what they're going to do next that's such a giant giant ask but when i look at our lives now if you're like you know we're in i'm in you know berkeley right now like if you're if you're hold a cell phone or you've you know searched on google or signed into facebook like pretty much like the internet like the web does know everything you've done where you are right now and you know according to my instagram it's become downright shockingly creepy like exacting like not I'm hungry and it gives me an ad for food but like I want Oreos and I open Instagram and there's a picture of Oreos like it is actually predictive of my behavior so I'm like we've actually sort of it's a brand new thing but I feel like we have and it's very Jewish because it's the internet is vengeful but I feel like we built beta god A friend of mine had recommended a TV show
1: called Now Apocalypse on Stars, and I watched it. The next day – now, this is just Comcast on my TV. The next day when I went to Facebook, there was an ad for that very TV show, and I kept thinking, who is listening? Is anybody listening? And – the answer is either they're all listening. This is not a coincidence. Because, no, it's not a coincidence. <laughs> but it becomes clear that on some level, you know, Zuckerberg is God or something.
0: Yeah, th- those kind of things happen more and more and more and more where you just step back and and maybe this is the other thing, like maybe since the dawn of time, like I, I don't understand how anything works. You know what I'm saying? Like it used right. to be, there's combustion engine, like this notion. But like, yeah, there's this weird sort of paranoid step back fear to things now, where you're like, that's creepy. I guess Comcast is hooked up to my Facebook. Is you know, like, I'm shocked all the time. So yeah, I really wanted to like explore that notion and tied to faith in the modern world.
1: In terms of that, I mean, where does a religious god fit into how we think about
0: Google? This can turn into like the preaching hour. But, you know, that notion where it's like there's the relationship with God and the relationship with people. And I feel like that's all breaking down. And it's especially breaking down online. You know, like this, you know, just how we talk to each other on Twitter, which also really scares me. Part of it, of course, is the tweeter in chief uh,
1: has shown the evil of the Internet.
0: You know, now that's become like an economic thing and a class thing. Like, you know, it used to be like I've, you know, lived a lot of places and lived, you know, when we were living... Uh, The year before last in Malawi, you know, like that notion where like getting access, it's such a giant thing to get access to the Internet like that is something to dream about. And then here it's become a thing of like, you know, really a a class thing to be able to get away from your screens, to have a flip phone, you know, like it's I I think getting our heads back is something that everybody's starting to fight for.
1: The other side of it is something. Getting back to the book and Jewish thought, you know, next year in Jerusalem, well, next year in Jerusalem, in a more realistic level, could just be typing in Jerusalem photos, and and there you are. You're not next year. You're not there, but yeah.
0: you're seeing everything about it. I gave a talk at uh, Michigan State, and a friend there uh, is the librarian but the virtual reality librarian and it's like just back to even how libraries changes but they they have the headsets but i want to see the room they have like this virtual reality room in the round and it is amazing like you literally even if you're just using google maps you just put a street in and it pops up on all the walls that it projects and i have to say it fully tricks like sensorily it was amazing how it tricks the brain so yeah i I felt like i was like oh this is like the holodeck from star trek like we're getting so close to some of these things i really dreamed about but even a static google map picture just to stand in the middle of a giant surrounding you really i had the sense of i just was putting places in all over the world it was fantastic well i just had this image
1: of having a passover Seder where a hologram elijah comes in and drinks from the cup the ability to manipulate reality turns all of us in some sense into gods. And I know this is kind of trite because science fiction has been dealing with it for a long time, but what happens to religion at that
0: point? I feel like there's a lot of reasons. You know, I'm not a, say, a scientist or something like that, but part of what I love about writing fiction is what it did for me as reader, as lost kid, you know, that it still does for me is just, you know, entertaining the questions, you know, Finding a way, I'm sure I talked about it in the last book because that was a driving thing. This John Gardner quote is like fiction is a place to reflect. So I really don't have, you know, the answer to that, but I feel like that's really what this book is looking at. I really did want to, you know, look at that where those two things I'm doing lots of hand motions, it's a very Jewish book, and I'm gesticulating.
1: You're listening to an interview with Nathan Englander, whose latest novel is Kaddish.com. Nathan Englander, I, I I wrote down a couple other things that I don't think I've ever talked to you about, one of which is that in one of the articles I read, it said that what changed you, what got you flipping the switch away from the religious Nathan into whoever you are now, uh, were two books, one 1984 and the other Portnoy's Complaint. And if it was Portnoy's Complaint, which again has a slight overtone in kaddish.com – what was it like for you the first
0: time you met and got to know Philip Roth? Well, to be supremely cheesy, I feel like the first knowing is the reading knowing. You know, like that's that definitely like for me, when you talk about that moment. Philip actually banned me from talking, telling that story. Like sometimes he'd ask me to do stuff and they'd be like, tell that joke. And they'd be like, I've heard that one enough, like opening act. But as a religious kid, I mean, being cloistered, I think it'd be hard for a lot of people like in the 1980s to read Portnoy's Complaint and experience it with its true late 60s shock value. But I definitely got to read it that way. So it just blew my mind to see, you know, my world represented in that manner. Hermione Lee, um, I think she's Dame Hermione Lee now, but the British literary critic and thinker and biographer, the, her wonderful Virginia Woolf biography and Penelope Fitzgerald. Um, but she, yeah, she's the one who, you know, one day we were at the library and she's like, oh, do you, you know, she's the one who asked me if I wanted to come meet Philip, to which the answer was yes. And <laughs> she always teases me. She introduced me as Nathan Zuckerman, which we still laugh about. Oh well, Did he know
1: who you were at that point?
0: Uh I think so. I mean, I don't know if just from Hermione or... Yeah, it was a long time before we talked about my work together. That's for sure. You know, but yes, it turned into a real friendship over the years, which I appreciate and miss. Have you read all of uh, all of his more recent books then? Yes. I like the short books at the, at, at the end of his writing career.
1: Uh, Nathan Englander, um, when I was on Amazon, I was just looking up various books that you might have written. And I did find that Haggadah, uh, so you wrote it and Jonathan saffron edited it? Is that how it went?
0: Well, it was Jonathan's idea. He always has such great covers. He's such a visual guy. Also, he's a concept person. He gets really excited about things. But yeah, this was his project. It was all his dream, his idea. I wanted to have nothing to do with it. The last thing I wanted to do was become a translator or translate anything or back to, you know, one of the anchoring ideas of Kaddish.com, like be so deeply involved in something so religious in that way. But he really talked me into it. And so, yeah, I translated the text. You know, there's a lot around that in commentaries.
1: Is there a single Hebrew text for it?
0: No, it's infinite. Like, that's the point. I don't think, you know, there's not like 20 versions of the Bible where there's like, oh, the four books of Moses and the three books of Moses or one where there's a burning bush and one where it's like, you know, whatever, a burning pear tree. You know, it's always a bush. You know, like that's the idea the Haggadah. Really, it's got to be one of the most malleable texts. Like people, there's different versions and different orders and infinite translations. And there's, you know, the armed services and the AA one and LGBTQ one and God free ones. And there's, there's a people make their own every year. Families do different ones. Yes. It's nice to build something and recognize it's just a contribution to a larger flow. You know, there's so much pressure on books. I'm in launch, I'm a crazy person right now. Like, it's nice to build this and be like, oh, this is our Haggadah, and we're just gonna put it into the stream of Haggadot, and it'll either, you know, do what it does, but it's just part of the conversation, and that was a lovely feeling. So, in, in some sense,
1: if you were gonna take the pure one, it would be kind of a road map with no particular roads?
0: Gonna be like it's like a jazz version. How about that? It's jazzy. You can sort of riff in your own way, but there is an order to it. They have to get out of Egypt in the end.
1: And somewhere in there, there's the four questions yeah. and the whole thing about the plate. I mean, we used the chock full of nuts one um, nice. from when I was a little kid, and in and it was edited by my aunt Rena. So by the time she died and my mom left and we, I stopped going to Seder's. We were probably on a unique voyage every Passover because that's what it was. So does yeah. this
0: thing have pictures? Jonathan always says about that project that uh, the most expensive part of it was the kill fees. He first pictured it with like hundreds of, uh, literally maybe like more than 100 com- contributors or something, and he commissioned all these things, and then he got rid of them. It ended up being really just a few commentaries and a timeline. But what it is is just typography that's just... It's just text as art, and it's like the whole history. If you flip through it, it's the whole history of Hebrew, like the formation of the alphabet and how it's changed over, you know, I guess it's millennia now.
1: And also, as going through Amazon, and I saw something there, a published work, a play called The 27th Man.
0: Oh, yeah. What's that? Uh, I'm, have a, I am have think we're going to announce soon that the second play should be uh, is hopefully will be spring 2020 of what we talk about what we talk about and frank but uh yeah i keep saying with the play like for the first decade of my career people would say what do you do for a living and i'd say i write book which is you know now i say write books but i really want that second play so i can write books and plays but the first play was uh right we're uh, talking about a lot of wonderful people who are gone now but uh when my first book came out nora efron called the amazing Nora Ephron and and asked to have lunch. And she was like, I read this book, I read this story, this is a play. You're going to write it. And if it wasn't her, like I had no, i just not a theater person. Uh, I had, you know, no idea how to write a play. But she literally was like, take your time, do your thing when you're ready. And I wrote the Argentina novel, The Ministry of Special Cases. Like literally we'd have, you know, dinner once in a while or something like that. We would check in with each other. But yeah, a decade later, I wrote this play and she just educated me and we drafted and redrafted, and she'd beat me up and feed me coffee and bagels and send me home And uh, yeah, it opened at the Public in maybe 2012 and then ran at the Old Globe in San Diego at the wonderful Old Globe. So that was an extraordinary... For a fiction writer, it just changed me as a writer. It changed my process, it changed how I work. Back to getting to see you, it's nice to see you uh, one year later. But um, yeah, I think even the way I'm working faster now, it just was a complete education about timing and how language works. It's just such a radically different form.
1: What were the reviews like? Do you remember?
0: Uh, I remember they were, uh, yes, they were really good and strong. And like any uh, writer or playwright, I can remember the one that was mean. It <laughs> uh, wasn't horribly mean, but nonetheless, I was like, really? But that's, yeah, every writer has a map. Like, lovely, lovely, lovely. You, I've got my eye on you. So, but uh, yeah, th- there was a lot of support for the play. So
1: so it opened at the public. It opened at the Old Globe. Is, is, is it going to open anywhere else? Is anybody uh, going to see it?
0: There was another smaller production somewhere and yes I you know there was talk and but also back to the writing life it's like options it's thing like people's stuff getting made or it just sits so yes there <laughs> was talk right now there are no productions up and but then Lincoln Center commissioned the story what we talk about when we talk about Anne Frank and we had some readings there and uh and and we'll see where it ends up.
1: Well uh, when we talk about when we talk about Anne Frank if I recall
0: the story correctly is It's almost all dialogue yes and it's two cup it's four people like back to that when they were like do you want to write that into a play I'm like yeah I would really like that
1: (laughs) well when when turning that one into a play you didn't need all well you couldn't get them from Nora because she's gone but it sounds to me when I read it I kept thinking this reads like a play I mean did you do that much work on the dialogue between play and and story?
0: Oh yeah. It, that, that's, you know, that's the education part. Like it, the forms just work differently. Like, uh, can you give an example? Yeah. The most, like the tightest, punchiest, your favorite, you're like, wow, that is the fastest, speediest, most compressed line of sh- even short story dialogue on the stage. Or like, literally blood would be running from your ears from the boredom. You know what I'm saying? It's like, you know, like the the timing changes that way but also where writers like I feel you know you people love I'm always screaming at my graduate students I teach it. NYU you know they want to be so like sophisticated or nuanced like everybody wants to have like so many layers where like sometimes it won't say like the two of us were talking we were in a studio with microphones I'm like it's okay to set the scene but that sort of nuanced way you build fiction on the stage it's happening in real time there's no pausing there's no processing at your rate no reading at your speed so some things are extraordinarily you know need to be faster and tighter and other things you need to make clear like there's a certain kind of clarity and finally gigantically drama the the way people have to change on stage like the, you know there's, there's just, an arc. Yeah, there's a real different rule the rules of drama change. I am still learning, but I am so fascinated by it. So that yeah, the stories it can have its same spirit. It's you know, it's like you know, if you would take a photograph and turn it into a painting, like they can really be in conversation with each other, but it's just a whole separate form.
1: So you sort of had to create a story, more of a story than what's there, because what's there for Warped.
0: 27th Man, yes, I needed, yeah, I had to shape everything differently, and I would always joke, like, my roughest draft, I'd be like, a thousand mounted horsemen across the stage, and I'd be like, you're not having a thousand, I'd be like, 50 horsemen, you'd be like, no horses, you know, like, you, you even, just the idea of the size of casts and how you make the feel of a crowd and learning all of that, you know, stage crafty stuff was just also magnificent, but yes, the story has to change and open out differently.
1: Well, in, in terms of Dinner at the Center of the Earth, turning that, say, into a film would transform it probably in ways that are probably a little beyond you just because it's a very literary novel. But something like com is more straightforward. So it conceivably be, if not a play,
0: at least a movie, I would uh, think. Uh- People say stuff like that. I was like, yeah, I always just think there's two camps. You know, it's always nice when there are options around. It's very it's tough living a writing life. I'm always happy to have an option. But like with me, I was like, yeah, the idea of anything getting made, if it ever happens, that would be wonderful. <laughs> but yeah, mostly I'll have lunch with someone and, you know.
1: Well, but uh, a play is a little different because yeah. a play frequently, I mean, you start the play. With somebody looking over your shoulder. I mean, you don't, yes. you know, it's a little bit different. I,
0: yeah. And I like to write, I was going to say, I don't know that I'd want to write a movie script like that, I would want to adapt my own book into a film in that way. But the, yeah, the playwriting, like I've also agreed the O Globe has commissioned it, but they've commissioned an original play. Like I'm really just excited about the form. Also, it's like meeting other people who have a different version of the same disease. Like I loved, Writing's very isolating. You know, I I get to talk to you when the book comes out, but like I'm alone all the time meeting someone who's, just as obsessed as I am and compulsive and driven and in love with the idea of what they're doing, but they just do sound. You know what I'm saying? I love that. You know, like a scene's better. I'm like, why is, the, you know, they'll take a, a break and I'm like, why is this scene better? They're like, there's a subtle ticking I've added, or there's the costume person. You know, like it just blew me away to meet these people that come together, you know, as a team. It was, you know, and everyone travels and you know, it's so, the commitment that is asked of, of theater folk is just, Gigantical. I found it so inspiring and addictive. Well, the collaborative effort is such a different
1: project. I was talking, name-droppingly, with uh, James Lepine, talking about Stephen Sondheim. And when I said, well, he did, and, and he would say, no, you don't understand Stephen. Stephen writes the music and lyrics, period. Yeah. Which means that it's a collaborative effort. We say a Stephen Sondheim musical, yeah, yeah. but in point of fact... It's the director slash writer, whatever, who's in charge, not Sondheim per se, though he's Yeah, no, he's him. he's
0: a giant figure. Yeah, people like Jerome Robert. These are gigantical figures and they obviously deserve their credit, but that's it. Anyone who would make it like a one person show, it just isn't. I found that so <laughs> beautiful and was so thankful. Like that's the other thing is I don't sit with you, you know, at your bedside and turn the pages when you're reading a book. It's really strange. You know, the director of the play Barry Edelstein, he said, you know, those like black and white photos, like you're in a Borsalino pacing at the back, you know, typing fresh pages like that's going to be you. But you you really are there in previews. You're literally watching people experience your work. And that's that was also extraordinarily strange. You know, it's like being inside your story. And that's going to be happening again
1: um, next spring. You said in the we'll, year. We'll
0: we'll we'll see. Yeah, we'll see when they announce. And yeah, that's <laughs> again. There's lots of people involved. I'm not used to that. It, it it's not when I'm ready. It's when everybody's ready.
1: One final element of Kaddish. Dot com. You know, I talk to people about it, and of course there are different kinds. And I'm, that's guilt, mm-hmm. Jewish guilt versus I don't know Catholic guilt. Yeah. I mean, I get the feeling Jewish guilt is your mother standing over you and Catholic guilt is your priest standing over you. For you as somebody growing up in a world of guilt, how does that affect your writing? I mean, does it make you feel more guilty if you're not sitting at the computer? Oh,
0: again, you know, it's how we started this talk. It's a a great you know, question to get to. But when you, you, you know, when you were calling this a, a very personal book, like I really think about how these things drive me, how they shape me. Cause it's, you know, cause I also see them absent. You know, you were talking about, you know, our policy, literally like our national government policy is to like literally attack the most vulnerable populations. Like we're going to cut special Olympics funding now. It's, it's, you know, it, it it's almost unreal in its in, in how it's being implemented, you know. Yeah, I don't understand how other people function outside of, say, rules or, you know, this idea of being beholden to people or society or guilt. But yeah, I think a lot of that stuff drives me and maybe too much, but I, I, I've I been reflecting on it a lot lately. So yes, it definitely keeps me in my chair.
1: Nathan Englander, you mentioned before a play next year of, your, of what we talk about and this book has now been finished
0: for a year. Are you well into your next novel? The writing was really early. So yes, I surely would like, would like to disabuse anyone that I had a three-month draft and then was happy and rela- that's just not even built into me. At the very end, I don't even write the bio. Like someone changed a comma in the bio they sent me. I think I called like 600 friends and was pacing around and, you know, drafting it a thousand times. So no, the uh, it was... Very much the last minute of deadline of publication that I had my polished, polished version that I uh, can live with. But uh, yes, I wrote it and then came back to it. So, no, I'm very much at the start of the next projects now.
1: Uh, when you say you're at the start, does that mean that you haven't put down a word, but you're still kind of working
0: from the uh, beginning in the end? You know what? It's a plus or minus a word is about where I'm at. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Maybe there's a hundred. Is it too soon to talk about what the general theme or
1: topic yeah, is? Yeah, uh,
0: I like the winnowing process. I was saying, there's, it's so clear to me. The nice thing about a writing life is the years go by, as they stack on, as you learn yourself. You know, I always talk about my buddy Joel, like we'd be going for a run. I'd be like this is ruined, it's broken, it's unfixable. We're like, oh, are we at week nine? Like, you're always like that at week nine. And now I know to ignore the, like, week nine panic. So, yes, at the end, everything seems inspired and, like, it's been put there for you. Like, someone serves you coffee and you're like, I was just waiting for that coffee. That's all I needed. But at this point, I can't even tell you how the ideas generate, for which I'm thankful. So, yeah, I have about 74 books planned and that's they'll start to fall away and there will be the right book.
1: And that one will be the one you'll be writing. Yes, feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com. You can listen to other interviews, either as Radio Walensky podcasts or in the archives pages of bookwaves.com. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast.